inspiration. I can do anything. Education. Let's do this. And application. Oh boy, this is going to be good. Welcome to Like It Matters Radio. Keeping us out of the water hazard with some truth therapy and teeing up solutions for today's big issues. Here's your life caddy, Mr. Scott B. Black. So welcome to the world of Mr. Black. Welcome to the world of Mr. Black. I am he, you are you, and the time is now for Like It Matters Radio. Living life like it matters. And today, I'm going to be the fourth hitter in the lineup of your Major League Baseball team. Today, I'm going to pick up the pieces. You know, this week, I've been peddling hope. This week, we've been talking about people who entered in my classroom one way and uh, all at different levels. Some doing better than others, some uh, having better marriages, some knowing God, some um, not having a lot of trauma from childhood, some broken, bitter, lonely, empty. But they come into my class and they experience leadership awakening. And in that 48 hours, they learn more about themselves in two and a half days than they could possibly learn about themselves in years outside that training. And their life changes. Because when you change your thinking, you change your life. And that's the key. See, there's something going on in in the world right now called fifth generation warfare. And this is warfare that is conducted primarily through non-kinetic military action, social engineering, information, misinformation, cyber attacks. Uh, There's a lot going on. And really, it's about information. It's about perception. It's about the narrative. And we're all in the people business. I don't care where you get your money from. We're in the people business. Uh, And again, if you're in the computer business, you know computers. If you're in the car business, you know cars. If you're in the radio business, you know radio. But we're all in the people business. Someday, hopefully, you meet a special people. And you fall in love and you get married and you have little people's. Every morning when you wake up, you look in the mirror, and what do you know? You see a people there. When you go to the gas station, you go to the grocery store, you run into people. When a man and a woman love each other, they create a little people. You got my point? We're all in the people business, and we got to know how people work. And we got to know not just how individual people work, but how groups of people work. And so in my training, people learn more about themselves in two and a half days than they can learn about themselves in years outside this process. They learn about people. They learn about how lonely and empty and how how broken we all are. It's not wrong or right. It's not good or bad. It's just factual. It's data. And the key for a leader is the ability to motivate. And motivate, the word just means to move people. To be able to move people from point A to point B in a way that you want them to move. And let's be honest. In America, in the world, we are moving in the wrong direction. You know, leadership and management are different. Management, if you're in a jungle, is about sharpening machetes, about creating muscle enhancement programs. It's about figuring out the best way to compensate machete wielders, which direction you go, how far you're going to go each day, when you're going to take breaks, when you go potty, when you're going to get some water, when you're going to get some food. That's all the how. Remember Nietzsche said, he who has a why can bear almost any how. Management is about the how. How do I take your money? How do I make you vote the way I want you to vote? Uh, How do I make you take this shot that'll destroy you? How do I make you, it's the ability to move people. 
And so in order to move people, you got to know how people work and not just individual people, but groups of people, because many of the laws and rules for the individual also apply for the group of individuals. That's why I love the story called the hundredth monkey story about social change. And there's lots of different meanings of this. And I'm not sure if I necessarily agree with the original meaning. And maybe in one future show, I'll go through the, 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 other side of this thing. But let me tell you the story of the hundredth monkey. I've told it before. If you haven't heard it before, listen to it for the very first time. Because it's time for story time with Mr. Black. The Japanese monkey, Makaka Fuscata, had been observed in the wild for a period of over 30 years. In 1952 on the island of Kushima, scientists were providing monkeys with sweet potatoes dropped in the sand. The monkey liked the taste of the raw sweet potatoes, but they found the dirt unpleasant. An 18-month-old female named Emu found she could solve the problem of the things she didn't like. She would just take her potato, her sweet potato, and wash it in a nearby stream. And she started doing this regularly, and she found out it not only got rid of the sand, but it made the potato taste nice, so the salt in the water must have somehow affected it. So she started doing this over and over, and it was a neat trick. And so eventually she taught this trick to her mother. She also taught this trick to her playmates. So they all started learning this new way, and those playmates also taught their mothers this new way. See, this cultural innovation was gradually picked up by various monkeys before the eyes of the scientists. Between 1952 and 1958, all the young monkeys learned to wash the sandy sweet potatoes to make them more palatable. Only the adults who imitated their children learned this social improvement. Other adults kept eating the dirty sweet potatoes. Then something something startling took place. In the autumn of 1958, a certain number of Koshima monkeys were washing sweet potatoes. The exact number is not known. However, for the point of the story, let us suppose that when the sun rose one morning, there were 99 monkeys on Koshima Island who had learned to wash their sweet potatoes. Let's further suppose that later that morning, the hundredth monkey learned to wash potatoes. And there's the story why it's called the hundredth monkey. Because after that shift took place, the shift took place. Then it happened. By that evening, almost everyone in the tribe was washing sweet potatoes before eating them. The added energy of the hundredth monkey somehow created an ideological breakthrough. But notice, a most surprising thing observed by these scientists was that the habit of washing sweet potatoes then, quote, jumped over the sea. Colonies of monkeys on other islands and the mainland troop of monkeys at Takasakiyama began washing their sweet potatoes. Thus, here's the story where it comes together. When a certain critical number achieves an awareness, this new awareness may be communicated from mind to mind. Although the exact number may vary, this hundredth monkey phenomenon means that when only a limited number of people know of a new way, it may remain the conscious property of these people. But, here's the big but, there's a point at which if only one more person tunes in to a new awareness a field is strengthened so that this awareness is picked up by almost everyone and this is from the book the hundredth monkey 
by Ken Keyes Jr. I want you to think about this. I don't believe in this cosmic energy field, although I do believe that we are creatures of habit. I do believe that leadership is a loop. Permission, example, culture. I do believe that you can program societies. I do believe that a series of repeated events, a series of repeated norms that are encouraged, that are rewarded, will modify behavior. And people do things for many different reasons. See, this is why this week we talked about many different things. Yesterday's show was the tip of the iceberg, under the surface. Because for an iceberg, you only see 10%. See, when that famous cruise ship, (laughs) the unsinkable ship, the Titanic, see, they saw an iceberg sticking up by the water. But it was small. It was a long time ago, 1912, 110 years plus ago. We didn't know a lot of things we know now. We now know that of an iceberg, only 10% is visible. 90% is underwater. That's how people are as well. You have no idea the Pandora's box in every single human being. See, when I put pressure on people in my training, you know what comes out of them? What's in them. The good book says, I think it's 2 Peter 2.22, that a dog returns to his vomit, and a sow, after cleaning herself, returns to the mire. Why does a dog bark? Because it's a dog. Why does a cat meow? Because it's a cat. Why do we do what we've done doing? Because we've done it before, and it's been done to us. And so today, on Like It Matters Radio, we're going to clean up some loose ends for this week. So we'll be back after these commercial messages. My show is about helping people become all they were created to be. Well, we all occupy a body, and we don't know how it works. We are born into it. But, man, that's a machine. And when you understand how that machine works, then you can work it more effectively. That's my outcome, to help people be able to make better decisions, have some hope, be inspired to be better today than they were yesterday, to live their life like it matters. Like It Matters Radio with Scott Black. Here's a real student testimonial from Like It Matters Leadership Awakening Training. The way we met Scott was through an answered prayer. We had a, uh, a business associate who recommended a leadership training process Initially, you know, I had been through uh, just a series of all kinds of leadership training and felt like I had been trained as much as I possibly could. You know, we went and went hesitantly. But the one thing, it would have to be consistent with my faith. And uh, it was your awakening class. And uh, that class was absolutely not only uh, the the answer to prayers, uh, business, but personally. It gave us the tools and it gave us the foundation to be able to really formalize and verbalize our values. Leadership Awakening is coming to a location near you. Details at likeitmatters.net. That's likeitmatters.net. Welcome back to Like It Matters Radio. Living life like it matters. Today on Like It Matters Radio, we're cleaning up a week, a busy week, a week of hope, a week of transformation, uh, a week of uh, opportunities. And ladies and gentlemen, if you have not listened to this show every week, shame on you. Man, the battle's in the mind. we got to realize that the battle's in the mind. We've got to control what goes on between the stimulus and the response. Remember, it was Dr. Viktor Frankl who famously said, between the stimulus and the response, there's a space. 
And in that space is our power and our freedom. You see, in transactional analysis, the study of communication, you know, Dr. Eric Byrne took the complex field of psychotherapy of communication and put it into layman's terms. And he created something called um, um, transactional analysis. And a transaction is communication. There's a stimulus and a response. Now, here's the thing. People say this all the time. You made me do this. You made me do that. You made me do this. You made me do that. Uh, And I didn't make you do anything. I'm not God. Now, did I create an environment that pushed on some of your walls, some of your triggers, some of your uh, insecurities? Maybe. I don't know you. I don't know your pain. I don't know your trauma. I don't know how closed off you are. But we are like a sponge. When you squeeze a sponge, the only thing that can come out of it is what's in it. So imagine I had a cup of wine punch on a table. There's a tile floor below it. You know how to imagine. We do it every day. And so I knock over my Hawaiian punch. And then, so there's bright red punch all over my beautiful tile floor. So you go under sink, you grab a sponge, or I grab a sponge, we take it out of its wrapper, we clean up our mess. When I squeeze that sponge, you're going to expect some type of red punch to come out of it because that's what I cleaned up. Same scenario, different drink. So now I'm drinking a brown soda. Again, I knock over my brown soda over my, onto my beautiful tile floor. Again, I go under the sink to grab a sponge. I take it out of its wrapper. It's a brand new sponge. I clean up my mess. And when I squeeze that sponge, you're going to expect some kind of brown liquid to come out of it. Why? Because that's what I put in it. In the story, we are the sponge. We are a microcosm of our beliefs, of our habits, of the things that were done to us and the things that we do. And at some point, there comes a time. At some point, you've got to ask yourself, is this getting me what I want? There comes a time in your life when you must decide between what you feel and what you know. You must between choose between, between your mind and your heart, between love and the truth. Sometimes the love you feel will hide the truth from your mind, but seldom from your soul. The bond between your heart and your mind is the strongest, and one will try and overpower the other at all times. But neither one alone or together can overpower your soul. For they do not possess the ability nor the strength. Only your soul can guide you. And when the time does come for you to make a decision, you must be prepared for an inner conflict. Maybe with your heart and mind. Maybe with your soul and spirit or your flesh and your spirit. And they can be so painful it can be overcome by commitment. But people are afraid of those moments. See, there comes a time in your life, as Shannon Adler said, when you can no longer put off choosing. You have to choose one path or the other. You can live safe and be protected by people just like you, or you can stand up and be a leader for what is right. Always remember this. People never remember the crowd. They remember the one person that had the courage to say and do what no one would do. My mom was German. Full-blooded German came over after the war and we were never allowed to talk about how did the German people allow that to happen And they were programmed no different than what's going on in America Day. They were programmed Let's go back to the hundredth monkey. I've heard that story many many times and I found this article called the hundredth monkey revisited by Elaine Myers And this goes back to the original sources and it puts a new light on the popular story that most people have never heard. And she writes in this article, is there some magic key that provides a shortcut to cultural transformation? 
Then she goes on to say, I'm going to read it verbatim. The hundredth monkey has recently become popular in our culture as a strategy for social change. Lyle Watson first told it in Lifetide, pages 147 and 148. But its most widely known version is the opening to the book The Hundredth Monkey by Ken Keyes. The story is based on research with monkeys on a northern Japanese island, and its central idea is that when enough individuals in a population adopt a new idea or behavior, there occurs an ideological breakthrough that allows this new awareness to be communicated directly from mind to mind without the connection of external experience, and then all individuals in the population spontaneously adopt it. It may be that when enough of us hold something to be true, it becomes true for everyone. This is what Watson wrote in page 148. I found this to be very appealing and a believable idea. The concept of Young's collective unconscious, that's what this is, ladies and gentlemen, a concept of Young's collective unconscious and the biologist's morphogenic fields, again, look that up, morphogenic fields, in context number six, offer perilous stories that help strengthen this strand of our imaginations. Vain imaginations. <laughs> Archetypes, patterns, or fields that are themselves without mass or energy could shape the individual manifestations of mass and energy. The more widespread these fields are, the greater their influence on the physical level of reality. We sometimes mention the hundredth monkey phenomenon when we need supporting evidence of the possibility, listen, of an optimistic scenario for the future, especially a future based on peace instead of war. If enough of us will just think the right thoughts, then suddenly, almost magically, such ideas will become reality. Ladies and gentlemen, that's a lie from the pit of hell. But that's what the deep state wants you to believe. She goes on to say, however, when I went back to the original research, and this is what happens in the world, we conflate things. We lie. We're being lied to all the time about our elections, about vaccines, about masks, about January 6th. We're being lied to people. Wake up. Your programmed hatred of Donald Trump, your programmed hatred of MAGA, your programmed hatred of Christians, your programmed hatred of white people is racism. It's bigotry. Why can you pretend it's something else? And this is what happens. We ha start with the truth and the lie happens. See, this is how the devil works. The reason why the devil is so effective is because he always starts with the basis of truth. So listen to what she says. However, there's a big but there. When I went back to the original research report cited by Watson, I did not find the same story he tells. What a shock. He must have been part of the Biden administration where he claims to have had to improvise details. See, the re research reports are quite precise, and they do not support the ideological breakthrough phenomenon. At first, I was disappointed, but as I delved deeper into the research, I found a growing appreciation for the lessons the real story of these monkeys has for us. Based on what I've learned from the Japan Monkey Center Reports and, Pri uh, reports and Primates, Volume 2, Volume 5, and Volume 6, here's how the real story seems to have gone. Listen carefully. Up until 1958, Key's description follows the research quite closely, although not all the young monkeys in the troop learned to wash the potatoes. By March 1958, 15 of the 19 young monkeys, aged 2 to 7 years, and 2 of the 11 adults were washing sweet potatoes. Up to this time, the propagation of the innovative behavior was on an individual basis, along family lines and playmate relationships. Sound familiar? Most of the young monkeys began to wash the potatoes when they 
they were one to two and a half years old. Males older than four years old, listen, who had little contact with young monkeys did not acquire the behavior. By 1959, the sweet potato washing was no longer a new behavior to the group. Monkeys that had acquired the behavior as juveniles were growing up and having their own babies. This new generation of babies learned sweet potato washing behavior through the normal cultural pattern of the young imitating their mothers. By January 1962, almost all the monkeys in the Kashima troop, excepting those adults before born before 1950 were observed to be washing their sweet potatoes. If an individual monkey had not started to wash sweet potatoes by the time he was an adult, he was unlikely to learn it later, regardless of how widespread it became among the younger members of the troop. In the original reports, there was no mention of the group passing a critical threshold that would impart the idea to the entire group. The older monkeys remained steadfastly ignorant of the new behavior. Likewise, there was no mention of widespread sweet potato washing in other monkey troops. There was mention of occasional sweet potato washing by individual monkeys in other troops. But I think there are simpler explanations for such occurrences. There was an IMO. If there was an IMO in one troop, there could be other IMO-like monkeys in other troops. Instead of an example, the spontaneous transmission of ideas, think, think, listen, I think the story of the Japanese monkey is a good example of the propagation of a paradigm shift. As in Thomas Kuhn's The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, the truly innovative points of view tend to come from those on the edge between youth and adulthood. The older generation continues to cling to the worldview they grew up with. The new idea does not become universal until the older generation withdraws from power and a younger generation matures within its new point of view. It is also an example of the way that simple innovations can lead to extensive cultural change. By using the water in connection with their food, the Kashima monkeys began to exploit the sea as a resource in their environment. Sweet potato washing led to wheat washing and then to bathing behavior and swimming and the utilization of sea plants and animals for food. Therefore, provision monkeys suffered changes in their attitude and value system and were given foundations on which pre-cultural phenomenon developed. Ladies and gentlemen, I hate to compare us to monkeys because you're not a monkey and you don't come from monkeys. We need to quit acting like monkeys but there shows you the pattern the pattern of community that's what's going on in America and what's going on is we're dealing with struggles Stanley Milgram Stanley Milgram 1954 Harvard's Department of Social Relations said that 80% of the population do not have psychological moral resources to defy authority and what you're realizing is people want to be like it's called groupthink. Google Joseph Goebbels in Nazi Germany. We're doing the same thing. Ladies and gentlemen, you got to realize between the stimulus and the response, there's a space. And in that space is our power, our freedom. We'll be right back with these commercial messages. Give me 48 hours and I will give you a new beginning. Give me 48 hours and I will give you hope. Give me 48 hours and I will give you your power back. Because between the stimulus and the response, there's a space. And in that space is your freedom. It is your power. At Like It Matters Leadership Awakening, 48 hours will change the course of your life. Discover the very purpose of your life, along with the ability to achieve. Give Mr. Black 48 hours in the next Leadership Awakening. 
sign up at likeitmatters.net slash schedule. Take a listen to this comparison of other training to Leadership Awakening. For probably two-thirds of my 30-year law enforcement career, I spent time in supervision and management, so I've been to a lot of leadership training. Been there, done that, got the t-shirt. I went to a leadership course in California where I worked, and it's an eight-month program. I went through that program. I went back later on as a facilitator, so I, I taught leadership. What we did in class was completely different than any other leadership program that I've been through. I mean, in 48 hours of leadership training in your program, it was just, it was dynamic. It was intense. It was powerful. You know, it was, it was amazing. It was amazing. Leadership Awakening. Change your heart. Change your mind. Change your life. Go to likeitmatters.net slash schedule for the next Leadership Awakening. Welcome back to Like It Matters Radio. Live and live like it matters. Our next Leadership Awakening class will be March 30th through April 1st in Minneapolis, St. Paul. Uh, I will then go to Monterrey, Mexico with Nidec Motors, and I will be doing a class in Monterrey. This will be my like uh, about my 10th class in Monterrey, uh, and so that's a closed class. But my next class in America will be uh, May 4th through 6th in Dallas-Fort Worth. And by the way, Leadership Awakening graduates, we have a Leadership Adventure class coming up. I think it's April 20th. Go to likeitmatters.net, check out the schedule. Finish the journey. Finish what you started in Leadership Awakening. Leadership Adventure is fun. It goes three levels beyond Awakening. It is an advanced class. Awakening is an entry-level class. And today, we're we're doing some cleanup work. You know, the, the fourth hitter in the lineup in baseball is the cleanup hitter. You got three batters that got a chance to get on base. Hopefully, each one got on base, and you got one on each base. And then that's the, the hitter, man. He's the guy that's going to hit the home run. He's the guy that's going to bring him on home. Well, you know what? This show is about bringing on home. This is what's going on. There's so much going at the unconscious level. We're being programmed. Group think. We all have walls. And a wall that every single human being possesses is wanting to be liked. One of the most famous proverbs goes along the line like this. The... The nail that gets hit the hardest sticks out the furthest. There are so many little proverbs throughout the world and different cultures that say blend in, keep calm, carry on, don't stick your head out or it's going to get hit. Can't we all just get along? Don't rock the boat. It's group think. Stanley Milgram, you need to know this name. He's famous for the six degrees of separation, but he's famous for something a lot more shocking. In 1954, Harvard's Department of Social Relations took the unusual step of admitting a bright young student who had not taken a single psychology course. Fortunately, Stanley Milgram was soon up to speed in social psychology. In the course of his doctoral work at Harvard, he conducted an innovative cross-cultural comparison of conformity in Norway and France under the guidance of Gordon Alport. By the way, this is an article from psychology.fas.harvard. 
So, obtaining his PhD in 1960, Milgram was ready to expand his work on conformity with a series of experiments and obedience and on obedience to authority that he conducted as an assistant professor at Yale from 60 to 63. Inspired by Hannah Arendt's report on the trial of Adolf Eichmann in Jerusalem, Milgram wondered whether her claims about the banality of evil that evil acts can come from ordinary people following orders as they do their jobs could be demonstrated in the lab. So Milgram staged meticulously designed sham experience in which subjects were ordered to administer dangerous shocks to fellow volunteers. In, in parentheses, it says, in reality, the other volunteers were Confederates and the shocks were fake. Contradicting the predictions of every expert he polled, Milgram found that more than 70%, almost 80% of the subjects, administered what they thought might be fatal shocks to an innocent stranger. Collectively known as a Milgram experiment, this groundbreaking work demonstrates the human tendency to obey commands issued by an authority, authority figure. And more generally, the tendency for behavior to be controlled more by the demands of the situation than by the idiosyncratic tra- traits of the person. The Milgram experiment is one of the best-known social psychology studies of the 20th century. With this remarkable accomplishment under his belt, young Dr. Milgram returned to Harvard in 1963 to take on a position as assistant professor. During his time at Harvard, Milgram also undertook a new, equally innovative line of research known as the Small World Experiment. Now, this is fascinating. Because this is why my training works so well. But this is also why people can have their life change in my class in 40 hours and go back home and forget it all. Because they live in such a dark place at home. Because the abuse, because the abandonment, because the neglect, they're still in negative relationships. They've got spatial anchors in a home where the kids don't listen to them, where the husband doesn't uh, honor them. Uh, is it because they put on weight or this and that, and so they don't have the, the love making and the affection and all that. And this becomes a pain. And see, what happens, people come to my training and I change their culture. Leadership's a loop. It's permission, it's example, and it's culture. That's what the 100th Monkey story was about. I read the 100th Monkey story by Ken Keyes Jr. uh, in segment two. And then in segment three, I wrote a rebuttal about Ellen Myers. And I want to finish that rebuttal because I think she really puts it in perspective. So let me back up a paragraph. In this article, she said, instead of an example of the spontaneous transmission of ideas, I think the story of the Japanese monkeys is a good example of the propagation of a paradigm shift, as in Thomas Kuhn's The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. The truly innovative points of view tend to come from those on the edge between youth and adulthood. It's also an example of the way that simple innovations can lead to extensive cultural change. By using the water in connection with their food, the Kashima monkeys began to exploit the sea as a source in their environment. So what does this say about the morphogenic field, she goes on to say, and the collective unconsciousness? Ready? Ready her answer? Not very much. Yeah, I mean, we make things, make believe things out of things. That's, that's not really what it says. Not very much, but the ideological breakthrough idea is not what Sheldrake's theory of morphogenic fields would predict anyway. Listen, this is where conflation comes in. Boy, the enemy uses conflations to tie things together that don't belong together. 
what does it matter if Donald Trump is as evil as some of you say? What does that matter whether uh, Joe Biden is evil, whether Joe Biden's a liar, whether they're stealing and lying? The Fetterman thing, John Fetterman, the guy's been in the hospital since he got elected. We all knew this, but you weren't allowed to say anything. They attacked you as an ableist. They attacked you. This was all about abortion. They wanted to make sure that they got Fetterman's wife to push the button. So, I mean, he's not even in, he's in the hospital suffering depression, all that. But here's a guy we just elected the U.S. Senate. Here's a guy that Oprah Winfrey took time uh, say, hey, you got to vote for her. You can't vote for my friend, Dr. Oz. We need that abortion vote. We need to kill these babies. So what does the hundredth monkey say about morphogenic fields and collective consciousness? Not much. That theory would recognize that the behavior of the older monkeys not washing also is a well-established pattern. This is what you got to get. These are about patterns, ladies and gentlemen. The secret to life is the patterns. Do you understand your patterns in life? And once you identify that pattern, you got to ask yourself a question. Is this working for you? Yesterday, on yesterday's show called uh, Under the Surface, I read you three powerful end-of-class testimonials. Three people who said their life has forever changed. Three people who said, I'm now going to feel this way the rest of my life. Three people who said, you need to change your life. You need to go to this training. And 48 hours later, they didn't want to talk to me. What did you do to me? I'm more negative now than I was. That's not true at all. I stood for them. I taught them how they work. I got some of the lies, some of the pain, some of the abuse that they've been put on them all their life out. See, what happens in my training, even though they resisted it, because the group, because the other people were there, worked with them and there, they bought into it. They started doing what I asked them to do. They started doing it even though they resisted, even though they didn't want to believe, even though they wanted to play the victim. I encouraged them. I built them up. I did things at the unconscious level that made them feel confident, made them feel secure, and they were performing well. They were changing. They were doing all that. They were excited at graduation. They were excited at the end of the first half final exam. They were excited at the end of the second half final exam. They were pumped. They hugged my wife. They told her, we're, we're going to walk together. We're going to be together. You changed my life. I want to keep in touch with you. And 48 hours after being back in their environment, we're now evil. They now hate us. What did you do to me? Don't you get it? What happened with the 100th monkey was not about morphogenic fields. It's about understanding that the behavior of the older monkeys, not washing, also is a well-established pattern. This is about patterns. There may be well a critical mass. This is what she says in the article. There may be well a critical mass required to shift a new behavior from being a fragile personal idiosyncrasy to being a well-established alternative. But, be, by, but creating a new alternative does not automatically displace older alternatives. See, in my class, I mandated it. It just provides more choices. Now, after they get on my choice class where they have no choice, in my class, they don't have any choice. You can either do what I tell you to do or get out. But at home, they have all the choice in the world. They can get bitter and angry. They can shut down. They can smoke. They can pop pills. They can drink. They can look at porn. They can do all the self-medication ways. But in my class, they can't. They either get ostracized or they do what I tell them to do. And when they do what I tell them to do, change takes place. See, 
She goes on to say in this article, it is possible that the washing alternative established by the monkeys on Koshima Island did create a morphogenic field that made it easier for monkeys on other islands to discover the same technique. But the actual research neither supports nor denies that idea. It remains for other cultural experiments and experiences to illuminate this question. What the research research does suggest, listen, here's your mic drop. What the research does suggest, however, is that holding positive ideas, as important a step as this is, is not sufficient by itself to change the world. We still need direct communication between individuals. We need to translate our ideas into action, and we need to recognize the freedom of choice of those who choose alternatives different from our own. Ladies and gentlemen, that's it. In my training, I scratch the CDs, I break the LPs, I interrupt the program, I make people do something different, I get them off their wide destructive path, and I get them off a narrow path where I tell them everything to do, and once they do everything I tell them to do, they start feeling different, they start thinking different, they start breathing different, they start sounding different, and the chemicals their body releases changes. The body releases 63 known chemicals. Those chemicals are released based on what we're thinking about, based on our breathing, and based on our physiology. If you don't like the way you feel, change it. Do something different. Change what you're thinking. Change your breathing. Change your physiology. You'll change the chemicals the body's releasing, and you'll change the way you're feeling. So quit playing a victim and get in the game. I'm Black. We'll be right back. Welcome to the world of Mr. Black. You've had a difference in your relationship with God, too. Tell me about that. Um, yeah, I was I was raised in a church uh, and uh, kind of stepped away uh, in, in my adult life. And this class kind of brought me right back to, to my faith. And that's a huge, huge part of my life that's just been missing. And I just, I, I feel rejuvenated, if that makes sense, that, you know, knowing that God's walking right next to me every day, every night. You know, he's right here for me and everyone else for that matter. But he's here for, for me right yeah. now. And you have some peace, don't you? Oh, it's 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 really amazing. Sorry, I'm gonna get emotional, okay. but it's 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 amazing. It's an amazing feeling inside my heart. Like It Matters unique approach allows people to see, hear, and experience leadership in motion. Like It Matters Radio. Radio like it matters. Welcome back to Like It Matters Radio. Radio, like it matters, inspiration, education, and application. And today I'm doing some cleanup. Had a busy week. We've had a lot of uh, guests join us on the radio to bring hope. I think I've had five people join me this week on the radio, and they talked about change. They went into my class one way, and they're all at different levels of success, all at different levels of brokenness. And they come out a new person. Now, why they change is because I had them do things differently. I had them think differently. I had them go into their unconscious brain. I did a lot of psychotherapy. I cleaned up some of their stinking thinking. I had them take a look at some of their belief systems. I shined a mirror on them so they can take a look at what happens when life squeezes them. Because, again, we're like the sponge. And when life squeezes you, the only thing that can come out of you is what's in you. Just like the sponge example. If I clean up uh, red soda, it's gonna red's going to come out of it when I squeeze the sponge. If I clean up uh, pink something, pink's going to come out of it when I squeeze the sponge. When you get squeezed, what comes after, out of you? I get so upset when people say, you made me angry. You made me this. I didn't make you anything. I'm not God. I am putting pressure on you. Why? Because you can tell a man's religion in time of despair. 
because a dog returns with vomit and a sow after cleaning herself returns the mire because we go to what we know and what's happening in America is we are flying uh, we're driving on the drama triangle we now everybody that's not a white male is a victim if you have any color in your skin you're a victim if you're a woman you're a victim I'm not sure our but if you're LGBTQ you're a victim as well so if you're a white male who wants to pretend to be a woman, then you become a victim. You go from being uh, the scourge of the world to the joy of the world. Do you see why so many men want to be women? Because as a white man, you're the scourge of the earth. You are scum. You are the cause for every single problem that's ever happened. You should be whipped. You should have no job. You should be a slave. You should walk around on your knees with a nose ring in your ear and a chain in your nose, in your nose, and then a chain tied to it, and you're dragged through life humiliated. That's what the world thinks about you. But if all of a sudden you want to be a woman... You now go from the bottom of the world to the top of the world. You now have a chance to become a secretary in Joe Biden's administration. You have a chance to be a Supreme Court justice. You have a chance to be the vice president, even the president of the United States. And all that changed was your identity. You went from being a boy to a girl. See, this is what's happening. There's something called the drama triangle. It's all based on victimhood. And you know, there are three positions on the drama triangle. Persecutor, rescuer, and victim. And victimhood can be defined by the three positions beautifully outlined in a diagram developed by psychiatrist and transactional analysis teacher Stephen Cartman. That's with a K. He calls it the drama triangle. The drama triangle is a concept that defines the three roles people typically take, uh, take on in high-conflict situations in America. Contrary to its name, the triangle doesn't have to involve three people. It simply follows how different personalities affect each other during a conflict. The first position is the victim. When problem arises, the victims tend to look helplessly inward. They spin a small anxiety, like, say, not answering a boss's email on the weekend or trashing the master trainer onto an outsized disaster. I'm definitely getting fired. No Nobody likes me. Look what he did to me. And then it says here, I'm just reading what Cartman wrote. Hello, drama queen. The rescuer is the second position. I'm just reading what Cartman wrote. The rescuer is a classic enabler who swoops in to save the day. He or she can be relied on, upon to always put out a fire or show up at the last minute. Well-meaning to a fault. This fixer behavior can lead to resentment and burnout. Reluctant confronters by nature. Rescuers don't speak up even when wrong. And what happens when a victim, even though she gets her life changed or he gets his life changed, and then you got a rescuer that's part of the team that's always lifting that person up because they need them. Don't you see codependent? The victim needs a rescuer. The rescuer needs someone to save. It's called codependent. And man, you know, most people can break beyond that. But boy, we had a, a group of people not too long on class. Um, man, and you had we had as a victim and two codependents, a rescuer, and they all became persecutors when the class was over. It changed their life. But when the class was over, now they all huddled together and say, how evil is Mr. Black? See, the rescuer, well-meaning to a fault. This fixer behavior leads to so many negative things. What is a rescuer in psychology terms? Doing for somebody else what they can do for themselves. You never let people learn on their own. You never let them get their feet. I mean, I see it all the time. You get people that, that play the victim, and they've had bad stuff happen. I'm not downplaying. We've all been victimized to different degrees. That's behavior. But to attach that to your identity, say, I'm a victim, and to walk around with your eyes dark and sunken in, to walk around with your shoulders rolled forward, to walk around slouching over like a dead person walking, 
that victim and then you got people around them thinking that oh it's okay we love you it's okay I'm going to protect you and that rescuer allows that victim to stay the victim why because the rescuer needs to rescue someone because that's where they get the self-worth from and then a rescuer or a rescuer that's not happy a victim that does not get saved at the right time in the right way they become number three the persecutor we all know the persecutor the go-to strategy are often controlling, blaming, criticizing. Well, what you did to me. I'm more negative now than I was before. And yet all I did was teach that person how their mind works. And all I did was teach them how valuable they were. And all I did was tell them that we believe in you. And all I did was say to them, you deserve better, that you're a living, breathing human being, and you are loved, and you deserve. That's what I did that was so terrible. See, it goes back to that 100th monkey story. There's a book called Atomic Habits by James Clear. Again, not a book I wrote. It's a best-selling book. And he makes talks about uh, how to make good habits inevitable and bad habits impossible. And he says this story. He says, in the summer of 1830, Victor Hugo was facing an impossible deadline. Twelve months earlier, the French author had promised his publisher a new book. But instead of writing, he spent the year pursuing other projects, entertaining guests, delaying his work. Frustrated, Hugo's publisher responded by setting a deadline less than six months away. The book had to be finished by February 1931. So Hugo concocted a strange plan to beat his procrastination. He collected all his clothes and asked the assistant to lock them away in a large chest. He was left with nothing to wear except a large shawl. Lacking any suitable clothing to go outside, he remained in his study and wrote furiously during the fall and winter of 1830. The Hunchback of Notre Dame was published two weeks early on January 14th, 1831. Sometimes success is less about making good habits easy and more about making bad habits hard. This is an inversion of the third law of behavior change. Make it difficult. You see, if you find yourself continually struggling to follow through on your plans, then you could take a page from Victor Hugo and make your bad habits more difficult by creating what psychologists call a commitment device. That's what I do in my training. See, that's why there's no commitment in this world. People can't trust because people are lied to about elections. They're lied to about skin color. They're lied to about how many genders there are. They're lied to about when life starts. They're lied to about outcomes of elections. They're lied to about science. For the last three years, we've been told to follow the science, but what they did is they left out one word. They mean political science, not the real science, because science tells us that there's two genders. Science tells us uh, that life begins at conception. Science tells us that a vaccination allows you to be immune from something. Science tells us that natural immunity is the healthiest way to go in any time. Science tells us if you alter your genetic code, you're going to have problems. A commitment device is a choice you make in the present that controls your actions in the future. That's what I do in my class. I tell people, I'm going to introduce you to a narrow path. I tell people there are two ways to do things this weekend. My way, which is the right way, and your way, which is the wrong way. I tell people, the same pattern that brought you to my door cannot be the same pattern that you do inside my door. Why would you pay me $2,500, two and a half days of your life, to do exactly what you've been doing before you got there? That's just stupid. That's crazy. So my class, I say, do something different. God says there's two paths. One's wide, one's narrow. On the wide one, there's many people on it. They're having a lot of fun. It's leading to destruction. But God says there's a second path. It's a narrow path. God says few, few people are looking for it. Few people find it. Few people are on it. 
And he goes out of his way in all the translation to use this descriptor. It's hard. It's hard. And he says, find that path because it leads to life everlasting. I introduce you in Leadership Awakening at likeitmatters.net to the hard path. I create a commitment device. A commitment device is a choice you make in the present that controls your actions in the future. It's a way to lock in future behavior, blind you to good, bind you to good habits, and restrict you from bad ones. When Victor Hugo shut his clothes away so he could focus on writing, he was creating a commitment device. Commitment devices increase the odds that you'll do the right thing in the future by making bad habits difficult in the present. However, we can do even better. We can make good habits inevitable and bad habits impossible. That's why I do this radio show but what happens is as powerful as my training is as powerful as my uh knowledge is that people apply what happens if people go back to their old patterns why because gravity is a powerful force gravity has one job is to hold you back and we have anchors we have spatial anchors we have relational anchors we have abuse we listen to that voice in our head 30 to 60 thousand thoughts per day Man, I've met the enemy and he's living in my shorts. If other people said and did to me what I say to myself, I'd never tolerate that. Go to likeitmatters.net. Let me get you on a narrow path. Let me show you a commitment device. And then you'll have this daily radio show for the rest of your life to keep it going. I am Mr. Black. You are under construction on the Like It Matters radio network. I'm reminding you daily, when you live your life like it matters, it does. You have been listening to Mr. Black master trainer for like it matters please find us on facebook by searching lim radio make sure to follow us like our posts and share with others also search youtube for like it matters be sure to like and subscribe to our channel and for more information on how we can help you live life like it matters go to likeitmatters.net where you can find more information on our transformational training our life coaching counseling, our radio show, and other ways we help you continue the journey of living life like it matters.